Today I'll be reading the account of Jonathan and his battle against the Philistines from 1 Samuel chapter 14. I'll read verses 1 through 15. Now it happened one day that Jonathan the son of Jonathan, uh, Jonathan the son of Saul, excuse me, uh, said to the young man who bore his armor, come let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. The name of one was Bozes and the name of the other Senna. The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash and the other southward towards Gibeah. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. Then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look. The Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they were hidden, where they have hidden. Then the men of the garrison garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come on up to us, and we will show you something. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, And they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled. And the earth quaked so that it was a very great trembling. This passage today, there's a contrast between the fear of Saul and the faith of Jonathan. Faith has sometimes been described as a blind leap, a belief in something uh, that goes beyond reason. You might even get that impression from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 that I read earlier, that says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the 
evidence of things not seen. But as Hebrews goes on to say, and the rest of Scripture helps us to understand, the Bible does not treat faith as a blind leap. Instead, faith is trusting in the promises of God, promises that are real and solid and knowable. 1 Samuel 14 gives an example of such faith in the person of Jonathan, Saul's son. At the same time, it does contrast Jonathan's faith with his father's fear. So today, we're going to look at those two things. We're going to see how Saul was imprisoned by fear and how Jonathan was inspired by faith. And for us, I want you to hear that lesson that Fear imprisons, but faith inspires action. We'll start with Saul, who was imprisoned by his fear and unbelief. The chapter opens with Saul sitting on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. It sounds like he's on vacation, but he's not. Remember that the Philistines had invaded and he had retreated here. Gibeah was his hometown, and and he rushed back there to try to find some a place of, of safety. But while he's there, he seems to be paralyzed, unable to come to a decision as to what to do in this terrible circumstance. The Philistines were raiding Israel at will. They were taking what they wanted. And here was Saul, the king of Israel, and he couldn't bring himself to do anything. He was paralyzed by indecision. That paralyzation springs from his fear and his unbelief. As he looked at the situation, he looked at it with his own human eyes and with his own human wisdom. And from a military perspective and from a human perspective, you, you kind of sympathize with Saul. The Philistines had an incredible army. I wonder if the children remember some of the numbers of the soldiers. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horses, and more people than they could even number compared to sand on the seashore. Humanly speaking, and from a military perspective, What could Saul do with 600 soldiers? 600. All the others had run off to hide, and Saul had ran off as well. Now, there are passages back in Judges. We know that there are some caves in the region of Gibeah. It's probably likely that that's where Saul went to, that Saul was hiding. This was no vacation for him. But Saul had even deeper troubles than the physical troubles he faced. And these troubles relate to his spiritual condition. Saul was plagued by fear because he had no faith. He's plagued by fear because of his unbelief. In previous chapters, we had seen how how he took matters into his own hands, rather than obeying Samuel, obeying God, rather than waiting for Samuel to come, he took matters into his own hands because he was afraid 
and because he did not believe that God could save them. So when he took the matters into his own hands, the Lord rejected him. And that invading army continued to strike him with fear, and so they all ran away to hide. And interestingly, Saul uh, surrounds himself with other emblems of wisdom as if that would help him. But it just proves to show his further superstition. At face value, it might seem good that he would have a priest there. The priest is even described as wearing the, the linen ephod, which was part of his office. And what's significant about the ephod is that it held the Urim and the Thummim. These are fun words, aren't they? Uh, but more particularly, they were used to seek God's decisions, to seek God's will. But you don't see any indication here that Saul was doing that. He didn't do it earlier while he was waiting for Samuel. While it uh, describes where he had chosen to, to place his seat, a place that would be noted as something of authority uh, under this pomegranate tree, but he had no wisdom to come to decisions. And he didn't appeal to the Lord for those decisions. And he didn't even call and ask Samuel to come. Instead, the person that he asked to come was the priest named Ahitab. This priest, excuse me, Ahijah, who is the son of Ahitab. The text goes further, so, so you know exactly who this is. He is the son of Ahitub, who is the brother of Ichabod, who is the son of Phineas, who is the son of Eli. And here, if you think back to earlier messages on 1 Samuel, you should remember that Eli had failed to discipline his sons, Hophni and Phinehas had failed their calling as priests of the Lord. They had abused their position. And the Lord judged Eli because of that. He rejected Eli and his descendants. But here is one of his descendants. Descendant of a rejected line of priests. The conclusion that we come to is that Saul is surrounding himself with emblems of wisdom, with symbols of power. Later we'll even see that the Ark of the Covenant is nearby, but he even spurns that. He continues in this pattern of treating God superstitiously, of surrounding himself with these uh, these shadows of God or representatives of God who had been rejected themselves. It's as if he thought that those would bring him success. And that's why I say he's treating God superstitiously. He's not acting out of faith. He's continuing to act out of fear. And his inactivity is one indication of that. It's indecision and inactivity. 
Saul was imprisoned by fear, and he acted accordingly. On the other hand, Jonathan is inspired by faith. And that's what the bulk of this passage is about. It's about Jonathan's faith. As I move in to consider Jonathan's, just remember the numbers of the Philistine army that he was facing. Just the foot soldiers were beyond count. And yet Jonathan set out with his armor bearer to see what God would do. Two people, count them. Jonathan and his armor bearer. Against an army, count them. Well, you can't. There's so many. Two went out to fight against the Philistines. Now, chapter 14 gives some details about the encampment, and I'm not going to go deeply into them except to explain when it says there was a rock on one side and a rock on another. It's not just a boulder. It's 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 a like a cliff face, a crag, uh, so prominent that they had names that uh, suggest they were slippery and and unclimbable. And the 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 point is that the enemies were camped on one side and the Israelites on another, and there was this narrow pass between them. So there was something of a of a military position that was there, but. Uh, but what, what's happening here is that Jonathan sets out with only one other man, with only one sword, by the way, to go and to fight against this army. And uh, you might say, well, what was Jonathan thinking? What a scatterbrained, foolish idea to go out and to throw yourself at an entrenched army in this way. What was Jonathan thinking? Well, that's the point of this passage. In fact, the overwhelming odds that Jonathan faces serve the purpose of drawing your attention to what Jonathan says about what he is doing and why he is doing it. Listen to verse 6. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Nothing restrains the Lord from saving. And his armor-bearer responds in faith as well. You go, Jonathan, I've got your back. Do all that's in your heart. I'm with you, man. Jonathan was inspired by faith. And from this account, there are two particular facets of his faith that I want you to pay attention to. I'll explain them and then apply them in a moment. The first facet is that faith rests on God and on his word. By faith, Jonathan believed that the Lord could save by many or by few. Remember the contrast that's being made here. Samuel or Saul was afraid. 
so afraid that he, he couldn't even decide what to do. Saul forgot the Lord, even though Samuel had, had instructed him and, and called him at the renewal of the covenant. He said, Saul, you're being anointed today. Serve the Lord. Remember to serve the Lord. And remember to consider what great things the Lord has done for you. He was placing a responsibility in Saul's hands to recite, to remember all of God's marvelous deeds, that those would strengthen his faith so that he would serve faithfully. Saul had failed to remember those things. His fear had clouded his vision of that, and he did not believe God. On the other hand, Jonathan believed this. He believed that the Lord could save, and that confidence comes from what he knew of God. Faith rests on promises that God has made. It rests on on, on the person of our triune God. It rests on all of those things that the Lord has done in history. So Jonathan could have remembered any number of times that God had delivered them in the past. I think that's one of the purposes of the author of Hebrews, reciting the stories from the past, those heroes, men and women who believed and they acted because of their faith. So Jonathan could have thought of the Exodus and the Red Sea. He could have remembered how God raised up judges who fought against numerous enemies, judges who led the nation in repentance and restoration that was unlooked for. I kind of think, as, as one commentator suggests, that that uh, seems like Jonathan may have had one judge in mind in particular. And that would be the, be the judge Gideon. Because, because God used Gideon to save the nation of Israel by a few soldiers. He can save by many or by few, but in this case, it was deliberately done by a few so that all of Israel would know that it wasn't the soldiers who won the battle. It was God who won the battle, certainly using Gideon and the soldiers. So I encourage you to reread the, the account of Gideon and see how God reduced Gideon's army. They were facing the Midianites, who, by the way, are also described having an army that was more numerous than the sand of the seashore. And Gideon starts with 32,000, but that's too many, and God reduces them. Everyone who's afraid can go home, and 22,000 left. Okay, we got 10,000. That's still too many. So God separated them, or Gideon separated them through this... Uh, this uh, drinking at the water brook, and some drank one way and some drank another, and 300 are in one camp, and they are the ones who stay and the others are sent home. By 300 soldiers and Gideon's leadership, God defeated the Midianites. And when you read through it, take note of how often Gideon says, God did this. 
God did this, not me. So Jonathan could have remembered a number of occasions like this, but, uh, but Gideon seems to fit so well because of those words that he speaks. God is able to save by few or by many. <clears throat> so you see how faith is resting on God. It's resting on his promises, resting on, on how he has acted in history. Secondly, faith acts while fear sits. That's a very dramatic contrast that's made between Jonathan and his father. Saul is described sitting. And the conclusion we've drawn is that he's sitting in indecision without any power or impetus to act because he doesn't believe. But Jonathan, by faith, acts. It may be that the Lord will work for us. What's interesting here is is that Jonathan didn't have, at this point, a direct promise of God. In other words, God hadn't said to Jonathan, cross over to fight against the Philistine garrison and I will accomplish a great victory. Instead, Jonathan takes some initiative, but it's initiative that's not presumption. Presumption is when you when you bind God to act in a certain way without any promise there that he would do so. So it's significant that Jonathan would say, let's cross over. It may be that the Lord will work for us. He knew and he believed that God could save by few, but he didn't have a promise that God would save. But he made a decision based on faith that God could. And so he acted. The commentator Phillips describes it this way. He made himself available for the Lord's use. That's a really wonderful way that, that captures this idea of action by faith that does not presume does not bind God to work in a certain way. He made himself available to use. And Philip goes on to say that Jonathan combined personal initiative with trustful hope in the Lord's blessing as he sought to advance the cause of God and his people. He was offering himself to the Lord, not demanding of the Lord. And that uh, offering of himself continues on his approach to the battle. And here we find Jonathan, Jonathan seeking God's direction. He says to his armor bearer, let's show ourselves to the Philistines and see what they say. There'll be something of, of two possibilities. Maybe they'll say, stay there and we'll come down to you. Or maybe they'll say, come up and we'll go up. 
And if they say stand, we'll stay there. And there's a, there's a little bit of ambiguity here. And some people have said, well, here Jonathan seems to be binding God. He's, I'll stand and we'll fight here, or we'll go up and fight there. Either way, we're going to fight. But I tend to think that Jonathan's words that come next suggest that his standing there, if they say, we'll come down, is that they would not engage in that battle because he says, if they say, come up to us, that will be a sign to us that God has given us the victory. So as he waits upon the Lord, as he makes himself available, he asks God's direction. Shall we continue in this direction, Lord? If so, have the Philistines call us to come up. And call they did. With taunts. Oh, look. The scaredy cats are coming out of their holes. Come up here. We'll show you something. That's all he needed. And Jonathan acted based on the faith that he had that that God could deliver by few or by many. And in the end, the Lord did use Jonathan to have a victory over this garrison. We'll talk more about that victory next week. But let me, in a sense, pause explaining the narrative to applying these aspects of fear and faith. There are three applications I would make. One is about fear and two is about faith. The first rises out of Saul's fear and I would warn you to be watchful about fear in your life. To be watchful about fear as uh, as an indication of unbelief that is plaguing you. We saw that in Saul, who was imprisoned by that fear, forgetful of the Lord, of his word, of his past mercies. And fear often has that very effect. It paralyzes you from being able to act. You can't even decide what to go, what to do. It tends to blind you from God's promises and may even squelch your seeking God's direction. Fear has that effect on you. So if you find yourself gasping under the grip of fear, it is good for you to ask, what am I afraid of? And is it right for me to be afraid of this? Has this fear paralyzed me? Have I even asked God's direction or his deliverance? And if you haven't, then why not? Be watchful of fear and ask God where you need to repent if there's unbelief that's motivating that. 
Now two applications about faith. First of all, faith rests on God and on his word. I want to apply this first to saving faith. God can save and has acted to save through through one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. The enemy that, that Jesus faced is the eternal wrath of the Father against sin. But through that one man's obedience, through that one man's death, God has provided salvation to you. And he offers it to, to all who would come to Christ in repentance and forgiveness and repentance and faith. But I find that there are people who are afraid to come to Christ, even though there are all of these good promises and ways that the Lord is is beckoning to you. Fear can still bind you up. You may be afraid and think that, How could God forgive what I have done? I know what I have done. How could God ever forgive that? And the shame of your sin and the fear of coming into God's presence can bind you up. To you, I would say, listen to what God says and believe that he is able to save. Christ himself has promised that he would never turn you away if you come in faith to him. Or maybe fear makes you think that your friends will laugh at you if you become a Christian. Or fear makes you think that your job will be jeopardized. You won't, you won't be able to advance if you, if you, they know that you're a Christian. To you, I would say, remember that God calls you to fix your eyes on Christ and that eternal heavenly reward that is far better than any treasure here on earth. Fix your eyes on him and run to him. Rest upon God and upon his word for that saving faith. Then that leads us to the second application. It leads us to to living by faith. It comes through in the fact that, that Jonathan acted while Saul sat. Because faith inspires you to act. It inspires you to make yourself available to the Lord Jesus Christ, to be used in his kingdom. It inspires you to uh, to apply what you are learning as you read God's word, as you focus upon who he is and what he has done. But you ask me, what if God hasn't told me what to do? What if God hasn't told me exactly what to do in this situation? And that's a really important question to ask. And it's appropriate to to go to the Lord and, and, and to ask for more clarity. But oftentimes in life, the Lord doesn't tell you 
exactly what to do. Instead, he leaves you with certain decisions to make that are based upon who God is and what he has said about himself. And by faith, as you understand those things, you're seeking his direction in life. And you make decisions believing that the Lord is leading you in those, those decisions that you make. We make ourselves available to serve the Lord really every day. There are, are personal applications that, that could be made, but, uh, but I want to focus on some more, uh, on two corporate applications. The first is that by faith we we buried Rachel Lechtman this week. By faith we we buried a sister in the Lord, a covenant child, believing that she will be raised to everlasting life, believing that she is now in the presence of Christ, enjoying that face-to-face fellowship with the Lord. By faith, we laid her in the ground, believing that there's a resurrection. Now, that's a specific promise of God that we can apply directly in our lives. There are other promises that lead us to believe that God saves sinners through the institution of the church. There isn't a specific instruction of the Lord to tell us, go and plant a congregation in Oklahoma City. But we believe that, that the Lord uses our testimony that he is able to save by few or by many. That gives us boldness to to share our faith with individuals that seem to be hardened in their unbelief or in their ignorance. It leads us to share our faith corporately by the establishment of a congregation, believing that the Lord would, would use that for the advancement of his cause and his kingdom. And so, though we are not a, a large congregation or a rich congregation, we believe that the Lord will supply everything that is necessary. This is not presumption. This is making ourselves available to the Lord, believing and praying that he would be glorified by saving sinners through the establishment of a new congregation in Oklahoma City. Two very specific applications of our faith in light of the general promises of Jesus Christ that lead us to act that lead us to act in very 
pointed and specific ways, trusting that the Lord will deliver, that the Lord will build up his own church, and that he would use us. Oh, may it be. May we follow Jesus Christ just like Jonathan's armor bearer did. Christ, I see where you're going. You lead the way. I'm right behind you. And may the Lord build up his church. And may he use us as his servants. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we believe that you have set us as lights in this world, that you have made us to be salt that preserves this culture, that you have established your church as that uh, ordinary means by which you would bring unbelievers to yourself. And so, God, we pray for your kingdom to come, your will to be done. We pray for your church to be fruitful. We pray for ourselves that we would be used in this way. Oh God, help us when we are afraid. If that fear is sinful, convict us of it, that we may repent and follow after you more faithfully. And as we believe, we pray that the confidence that you are able to save by few or many would give us boldness to speak to those around us that need to know Jesus. Help us to give ourselves wholeheartedly to you that we may be used in drawing others to faith in the establishment of a new congregation. God, help us in our faith to believe you and your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jonathan's experience made me think of Psalm 147. In this we will praise God together of his his, uh, incredible character and how he has has acted. But it closes by saying, in strength of horse or speed of man, the Lord takes no delight. But those who fear and trust his love are pleasing in his sight. My prayer is that uh, that this faith that has been described of Jonathan's would be yours as well. That you would uh, fear and trust his love and act accordingly. Let's stand and sing Psalm 147a.